Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, where we pick up verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the Old Testament. And we'll ask the Lord for his blessing as we usually do. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge the truth that we are desperate and in need of your help, especially in spiritual matters. Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus taught us. Apart from Jesus, we, we can do nothing. We, he's our connection to life and understanding, and in Jesus is all the treasure and all the wisdom and all the knowledge uh, that we could ever need. And so we ask, uh, Holy Jesus, who is present among us, would you open the eyes of our understanding, give us grace that we might put these truths into practice to grasp them and then use them in practical ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what's the most spectacular worship service uh, that you ever were a part of? What's the, uh, the most uh, wonderful worship experience that you can recall? Maybe bring that up in your mind. Uh, I remember in the early days of my Christian experience, I was at a, at a church in Santa Cruz, and I had invited a coworker to come to church with me. I was all excited, and we were sitting toward the rear of the sanctuary, 11 o'clock service, and, and the choir in those days, it was a church with a choir. The choir would start the service, and then the pastor uh, would walk on the platform, and he did, as the choir was leading us in a worship song, the church was full, and we were singing, and, and suddenly, really, I didn't even know what happened, it just felt very heavy in the room, and uh, the pastor, instead of going behind the pulpit, went to the side and knelt, but it, it everybody was already kneeling. And uh, my friend turned to me and said, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and I really didn't, but I had goosebumps. I had, it was just very amazing. No, what I like about it is nobody was trying to make that happen. And I think it's a real mistake to try to manipulate the service so that that could happen again. Uh, and uh, there have been a few times uh, in my life, and I'm, I'm sure in your life, where uh, just there's this electric kind of uh, tangible witness to your soul that, that you're not just singing a few songs, that, that the, the Lord Jesus Christ is present and doing a work. Uh, even uh, this last weekend, Sunday after service, I went down to Pastor Chuck's uh, memorial service there in Anaheim in a big stadium where there were about 15,000 people singing. And uh, Jeremy Camp led Overcome. And the whole place was belting it out and hands raised. And just such a sweet full, freeing, you just could sense the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I say that, uh, you know, you can't really judge much by your feelings about the presence of the Lord or how he's uh, working in our hearts and lives because our feelings are just our feelings. You know, goosebumps are really nice and uh, spine-tingling moments are, are really fun and encouraging, but they're really irrelevant 
and unnecessary uh, in the day-to-day work and service and worship of our Lord because we walk by faith, not by sight, not by feelings. Uh, We like them, but they don't always come. But we know by faith that we're two or three gathered together. There he is doing the work, whether we feel it or not. Amen? Well, you know, that said, there have been some big bang worship moments recorded in the Bible where God's glory just shows up. And uh, certainly we can expect some big dramatic moments as the day uh, draws to uh, the second coming. You know, we know there's going to be some very dramatic things are going to take place, especially when we arrive in heaven. Uh, uh, but here in 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to read about one such worship experience, uh, a service to remember for God's people, Israel. And so uh, it, now, for context, Israel's first permanent place of worship has just been built. Solomon has built the temple there. It's complete, right? But it's missing, I, and the opening ceremonies have not begun. That's this chapter. And opening ceremonies will be akin to like our Olympics when we gather on a large scale effort to uh, just have a, a, a wonderful encounter uh, there at the Olympics you can imagine with all the bling and the lights and all of that. Uh, well, uh, I have a slide, the cutaway that we've been using. After seven years now of construction, and actually fifth, uh, 14, uh, 13 years uh, on top to uh, build Solomon's five palace kind of complex on top of uh, the time that it took to build the temple. The temple is ready to go. The palace is done, and now the dedication service awaits us and where the Holy Spirit is going to fill this place. And what we've learned, which is kind of connects us to this, is, is that it's really a picture of everything Jesus is and came to do. We talked about the altar where Jesus ultimately fulfills on the cross uh, the sacrifice that takes away our sins, uh, the cleansing water that makes us clean. And then the holy place here and the holy of holy place. Uh, This is all up and running and it's all about the Lord. Jesus, the light of the world, the menorahs in here. Uh, The tables for the bread of, of God's presence which says Jesus is the bread of life. If anybody believes in me, they shall never hunger or thirst. I am the light of the world. Uh, If anybody follows me, he shall never walk in darkness. The curtain here uh, separating where the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim. Nobody really knows what cherubim look like because there are different descriptions of them. Uh, But they are the creatures who stand guard at God's throne. And what's interesting is is that in Hebrews, I believe it's uh, chapter 9, it says that this was built as a copy or a shadow of heavenly realities so that there's something about the Ark of the Covenant in between the cherubim and the throne of God and uh, all of this scene that is a shadow of what's happening in heaven. And so, uh, and of course, the work of God that he's doing in us because he calls us the building of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 9, it says, we are God's building. 
And so all of these things that we've been learning about the temple, and even tonight with the glory of God coming into it, uh, we're going to see a picture of what, what it means to be uh, the temple of the Lord ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, don't you realize that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So all of this really connects to us in an interesting way because it is kind of prophetic because it's about not only God's work in the midst of the church, as we are living stones that kind of make up a temple right here, that the Holy Spirit is now present today in this moment, doing work in hearts and lives, uh, but also where we're headed, because in Revelation chapter 21, about heaven's reality, is the, the voice from the throne that says, behold, now is the dwelling of God with men, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. So just uh, a wonderful picture of where we're all headed, to, to God's house. We're headed home with dad forever, where it's safe. That's kind of the point of this, that ties it, uh, that takes it from uh, some kind of boring lesson to the glory of God filling the temple, and who's the temple? Uh, that's also us in a small and wonderful way. So that said, the building's up, right? And we're ready to dedicate it and see it come to life. Uh, verse one. Let's make it all the way to verse 11 uh, for our first section. Okay, then King Solomon. So the building's up and we're ready. We're good to go. King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark or chest or box, that word just means chest, of the Lord's covenant, which is the Ten Commandments, from Zion, which is the name of Jerusalem before it was conquered by David. And Zion kind of is a term for Jerusalem or for the whole kingdom of God, in fact. So Zion really caught on there. So when you hear Zion, you can think Israel, kingdom of God, Jerusalem. The city of David, Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now all the men of Israel came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival. That would be the, 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 the holiday of tabernacles or booths or Sukkot in Hebrew. In the month of Ethan Eim, the seventh month. All right, so they're all gathered together there in front of the temple, around the temple. When all the elders of Israel, verse 3, had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today, the day of this writing of 
1 Kings. Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came up out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now, that is a worship service that everybody is going to remember, especially the priests who got kicked out of the church building because the glory of the Lord was so phenomenal that they just couldn't keep on doing their service. And so we're going to pause there. Now, just for the big picture, chapter uh, 8 here is divided into about four sections. We're only going to cover this section tonight. There's a lot of insight here, so we're going to take our time. But... Uh, if, you, if you're taking notes, there are four P's here in this chapter. <clears throat> Number one would be preparation. And so hearts are prepared, uh, verses 1 through 11, and that's going to be our text and subject tonight. Uh, but further on, uh, number two would be proclamation. Solomon is going to address uh, the people gathered around the dedication uh, there from verses 12 through 21. And then there's that long prayer, my word. Uh, it's a beautiful prayer, and we'll take a look at that uh, when I get back. Uh, verses 22 to 61, a beautiful prayer of dedication. Uh, so, so wonderful to take a look at. And then finally, <clears throat> the fourth P would be party, because there is a celebration after the dedication, and it, it's a party with no regrets, a clean party, a party of joy and righteousness and truth. Uh, it's just wonderful. And so that would be verses 62 through 66. Okay, the first section, first 11 verses, preparation. Uh, if you're taking notes, their hearts are prepared. Now, I, I like to share with you my little insights just for me. I write them down, and I, I wrote down, uh, don't underestimate the importance of the worship time. All right? Uh, what you are, we're missing in 1 Kings chapter 8 is filled in in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, which is the parallel companion text, all right? It, it just elaborates a little bit more. And what we find in 2 Chronicles 5, the whole nation is gathered there, right? Uh, it's a one-week celebration because it's the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. Uh, King Solomon appears in his royal splendor. You know, when Jesus uh, compared uh, King Solomon's splendor to a beautiful lily. And he said, look, take a look at the lilies, how beautiful they are. They don't have to work or, or sow or, or prepare themselves in any way, but God just clothes them uh, even more than the splendor of King Solomon. And so King Solomon comes out in his royal robes, Second Chronicles 5 tells us, there are myriads of priests in white linen, streaming in and out of the temple. There are, according to Second Chronicles, in this very text, there are uh, singers and musicians, choirs and cymbals and harps, 120 trumpets, blasting melodies, and uh, explosive worship. I'll just quote uh, a line that fits right into our text. Uh, 
it says, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they all raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, he is good, his love endures forever. And so that song was being sung as they prepared their hearts for the glory of God and the presence of God to fill the temple. And so worship is so much more than a few songs. Worship is the time that kind of uh, tenderizes our uh, prone to hardness hearts. Uh, that we're, where we're surrendering, where it's a spiritual thing. I, 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 it doesn't even matter about sound and the mix and who's singing and what they're singing. If you like the song, if you don't, if they're struggling, if they're not. It's a time where you can, in a spiritual way, imagine the Lord right there and you bringing your life your affections, your concerns, your hopes, your dreams, your day, your struggles, everything about your soul, just to open your heart. And and it's work. It takes work to focus and to use faith and to surrender and to take every thought captive. But that, my friend, is what opens you to receive and meet with the living God. You do not get that. You will not connect without coming in with a heart that's soft and open and yielded and loving and and adoring and surrendered. And so I exhort you as a pastor uh, to work harder at your worship, private and corporate. Some people never even worship privately. They do not sing. They're not comfortable with singing. Uh, You know what? It's kind of nice sometimes to have a worship song that you can sing along with. But just to get into your prayer closet and open uh, the word of God and maybe have it, the lights dimmed or whatever. You have your candle, whatever you do, right? Uh, I have my music. I have a thing that I do and you have a thing that you do. But to raise your hands and just to, to worship to worship, not just to start talking to the Lord about your day, but just to, I adore you. I I love you, Lord Jesus. And just in your private way and the most intimate of speaking, I'm speaking a foreign language to some of you. Some of you are like, I skip all of that part. I don't do any of that. You're missing this. You open your heart and you let God come in and fill you uh, Never underestimate the power of the worship time. It has nothing to do with what you hear and see. It's all about what's going on inside of your heart. Now, uh, the second thing I notice in our uh, little section here is that the men are engaged and the men are leading. Now, notice the role here in this time of preparation for the glory of God to come. First, the elders are called the leaders, and they assemble, and the men of the families are leading the way, and the whole nation is gathered, but who's leading? The men, the dads and the husbands, and the elders and the leaders in the church. They're leading, and it's something that you really don't see a lot of today. You see more women in those roles. The wives and the moms are the spiritual leaders in the homes a lot of the time sad to say because it's not their responsibility. Yeah, they're supposed to be nurturing their children, being an example, and uh, 
reading the Bible with them, but dad is supposed to be really leading the way there. And so the first thing you see there that I have a note here is check out God's expectation for men. He wants them to lead. Um, Fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those two words just mean training and instruction. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wow. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Who's competent for that kind of thing? Every man in here feels convicted right now, including me, because it is so hard to open the Bible and to pray and to read in front of those who know you so well. There's something that's very hard about that for men. Uh, We just feel like uh, you know us and all of our weaknesses, and now we're going to play Mr. Spiritual, and we're going to open the Bible and say, you know, it's just really hard. I think what will really help you is if you just don't try to read a whole chapter. You just say, you know what, kids, I've got a scripture I'd like to share. After we eat, I just want to read one paragraph of scripture. Or bedtime prayers. They don't have to be as long as Solomon dedicated the temple. I'm afraid that when we do that, we ruin everything. We make it harder for us. We make it harder for them. Uh, and anyway, they're half asleep by the, you know, the third verse. Anyway, right? So uh, to take your wife's hand and, and, and just say, let's just have a quick word of prayer. Quick. Or you're embraced at the door and say, Lord Jesus, I just pray. Just a quick prayer. It, it, that's all it takes sometimes is to start down that road and, and uh, I just see you just look and you see all the men gathered and all the men are called out and all the husbands and the fathers and they've got their wives and kids there and I just look at that and say ah oh, that's the way God had it planned that's what God wants and so uh, what is a man if not to be about the father's business and going into every situation trying to shepherd and guide and facilitate the Lord's will. That's what a man is. That's what a man is. Uh, uh, Going on, even at verse 2 here, uh, the timing is very significant. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but uh, everything's done. Last chapter, the building is ready to go in the eighth month. Chapter 6 and verse 38. It says, we're done, and it happened to be in the eighth month. When's the dedication happening? In the seventh month. Whoa, what does that mean? They waited 11 months to have the dedication service. Now, why did they do that? Well, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. Uh, uh, Sukkot is coming up in 11 months, and they all have a week off. And they're all supposed to come to Jerusalem anyway. So what I wrote down here is Solomon factors in practical considerations of the worshipers when organizing the service. He said, okay, we're done. It's the eighth month. Uh, Let's call everybody. Let's have this big dedication service and this is going to happen. No, it's not the right time. It's very inconvenient for working families. So let's wait. Let's plan. Let's take 11 months. We'll plan. We'll organize, we'll strategize. 
And it'll also give families a chance to harvest their crops, store their fruit, uh, and then take the week off, and then they come in here. So he's thinking like that. Now, the, the Feast of Booths, you've heard it called Booths. Booths is the old King James word for tent. And in fact, tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's just the Feast of camping outside in a tent. That's what it is all about. And, and what it is, most of you know, it's commemorating the time out in the wilderness when they wandered around in tents. And, and God was faithful to provide and dwell with them. And so here's the second layer of why they waited 11 months is because the fulfillment of, hey, we used to wander around. God would follow us around. We, now we have a home in the promised land, a permanent home, and so does the Lord. And it's on the holiday celebrating God's faithfulness to dwell with his people. The word Sukkot in Hebrew means to dwell. Uh, How does God do all of this? He arranges things like that so perfectly. And so on the very time that they're celebrating the faithfulness and the goodness of God to dwell, he is going to indwell uh, the temple. Just amazing to me. So the harvest has ended, the crops are in, the people are off work, and they head to Jerusalem. Um, Let's not make the worship of God unnecessarily hard on families. That's the point. Some pastors don't get that. Uh, They have you out every night of the week. Uh, When we started the church, we said no Sunday night services. I worked most of my ministry up until five years ago. I always had a full-time secular job with the ministry. So Sunday was like my only day to catch up. Saturday and Sunday, that's it, with your family. It's a school night, right? It was so hard on our family to go out and, and be early to church and help serve there and get home. I just said, you know what? I know what that feeling's like, and that's not going to happen at our church. You know what? God bless every church that wants to meet whenever they want to meet, but I just feel like, you know, there's no, ch- there's no service Wednesday night Thanksgiving Eve here. Why? It's Thanksgiving Eve. Moms are very, very busy. So are dads, right? Families are traveling. And uh, you know why? why, No. You know what? I'm never going to sound spiritual when I talk like this. It'll never feel like, oh, you're very spiritual. But I'll tell you what. I feel like it's a spiritual thing because it's a loving and considerate thing to do. Maybe you're thinking, well, I would love to be here on Wednesday night. Well, you know what? There are people who have to get here early and work and stay late here. Long after you've gone home and changed into your jammies, people are still here. (laughs) All right, moving on. So one through five, the crowning event uh, here is the heart of the entire operation. Uh, the ark is brought in. Now, I got a picture of the ark, and we're going to talk about it again. It's the only piece of furniture that wasn't recreated. All right? So they're going to take this baby right from 400. It's 400 years old. They still have it around. But they're, they're going to park this right inside the holy of holy place. Now, previously, and it was created, and uh, they wandered with, in the desert in that portable worship t- 
tent called the tabernacle or, or tent of meeting, and uh, he wandered around for 40 years with them. And then uh, it led the way, do you remember in Joshua chapter 3, when they came into the promised land, guess who was leading? No man. This, the presence of God. Now, the ark, the chest of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, right, uh, was, 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 was put out there in front to signify that God himself uh, is also, this is called the throne of God. In many places, it symbolizes the throne where God will meet uh, us and speak. It's called the mercy seat or the meeting place. Uh, the Lord said, I will meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the Ark of the Covenant. From there I will give my commands for the people, Exodus 25 and verses 33. And so this is actually called the mercy seat. Actually, it's just a cover, right? But it's the mercy seat where once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom in Hebrew day, Kippur to cover, on the day of atonement, which you can find in Leviticus chapter 16, beautiful ceremony, speaks so much of Jesus and us and forgiveness. Uh, On that day, the high priest would go through the curtain only once a year on that holiday and bring the blood of the sacrifice that represent all the sins of the people and put it on this cover called the mercy seat or the, uh, the place of atonement. And God says, there, here, I will meet. So inside are the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts, right? He says, that's my covenant. That's my testimony. If you want to be right with me, thou shalt and thou shalt not, right? So that's my covenant. But they broke it. Okay, so somebody has to die. So somebody did die, an animal, in the place of the sins of people. And so on top of the contract that said, thou shalt, and we all shalt noted, the shalt not shalt, whatever, we did. We really messed up. And, and so the blood went there. And, and God said that that was uh, enough. And so it was the presence. Now, Around this, it hasn't been installed yet. They brought it up the hill. And around, around this, they have gathered. And it says that they sacrificed so many animals that they stopped counting. It was innumerable amount of sacrifices. And commentators were quick to pick up that everybody wanted in on the action. Everybody was so happy and felt this is the presence of God. The Lord is with us. And now... All of that sacrificing ends up to be meat on the barbecue for the party. And their grain offerings of Thanksgiving, that makes bread. And so it's really funny that a portion of what they bring actually becomes, comes back to them in the form of a, of a communal meal. All right? And so uh, they, they're all around and they're sacrificing now. And so... Uh, I think as thankful as they were and how many sacrifices that they were giving, uh, it wasn't really about their countless sacrifices, but it's about Jesus' one sacrifice. On one day and one act, all of our sins were paid for. Listen to what the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 9. So Christ has now become the high priest 
who has entered the great perfect sanctuary in heaven, not made by human hands, in heaven, he entered that sanctuary, not part of this created world. Once for all time, he took blood into that most holy place, but not the blood of goats and calves. He took his own blood, and with it, he secured our salvation forever. Under the old system, or under the Old Testament, the blood of animals could cleanse people from defilement. Just think how much more then the blood of Christ will purify our hearts from deeds that lead to death so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so you just see all of these people sacrificing and, and the commentator, the writer saying, you couldn't even count it. They were so thankful. There were sacrifices just in response to, to God's blessing. Um, Listen to what Philip Ryken said about all of the sacrificing around the Ark of the Covenant. As far as our salvation is concerned, no further sacrifice is needed. Since God's demand has been fully satisfied through the cross, there is no further sacrifice that we must or even can make for our sins. All that is left to give back to God is our praise. When we consider who we are and who he is, and what he has done for us on our behalf, we should be offering countless acts of love toward him and his people, countless prayers of thanksgiving and praise, countless gifts from our resources to kingdom work, serving him with countless deeds of love and mercy. And so the writers and the scholars are quick to pick up on all the sacrificing around the Ark of the Covenant before it goes into the temple likening it to our response for our gratitude for our salvation. And if they were doing countless sacrifices then uh, in, with their limited revelation of God's love and atonement, how much more we who have the full picture. Uh, about sacrifices, David Livingstone, the famous explorer to Africa and missionary, of course, in the 1800s, he spoke at a, a, to an audience at Cambridge University, and he said, I never made a sacrifice, and I think we ought not to talk of sacrifice when we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself up for us all. You know, so we can't offer anything to earn his love, but we can offer much to say thank you. And uh, I think that's a picture of what we have in the text. So the ark now is going to be installed here in these verses uh, into the holy of holy place. And God's presence comes down, fills the place. And this is our kind of our concluding thought. The priests are unable to carry on serving. I just love this picture that they have to come running out of the temple because God shows up, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? It's a meeting place to meet with God and then uh, they can't really stay there because of his holiness and his presence. And so I think this uh, fact that God comes down like that is saying uh, a lot of different things. But one of the things that I think it's saying is what's the point of worship? What's the point? The point is me, my presence. 
Oh, stop your busy work. Stop running around. It's not about your busy serving and doing and your busy little life. Just stop. Stop and, and, and look and gaze and reflect and draw near and worship and just be. Be with me. That's the point of worship. That Nobody who ever came to that house who saw that ever returned with any kind of uh, false understanding of what coming to the house was all about. It would be, be about him, the presence of God in this place. It wouldn't be about the priests or the king or the, or the busy uh, serving around and all of the activity. Uh, it's not about the gold or the bling or the sparkle or the furnishings or the number of people it's not about the leaders or the personalities, the trumpets, the harps, the mu- uh, musicians, the priests. Uh, it's not about what you can do for me, the Lord is saying through this uh, in your wonderful little busy life. But what I can do for you, who I am, what I have done for you, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God first loved us and gave his son an atonement for our sins. We didn't even come to him. The father had to draw us. His kindness led you to repentance. And so really, this is just in line with all of this. God is the initiator. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the living God who created us and this world and provided a way for us to know him. Uh, just, just wonderful. Now, interesting, let's talk about this cloud. The, ra- the rabbis called it Shekinah glory. And you've heard that word, but it's not in the Bible, Shekinah. It's a rabbi word. It's a rabbinical word. And it means wait or to dwell. <laughs> the presence, right? And so this cloud has been in the Old Testament a lot. Now, I think you're going to be interested to find out what the cloud is. Or should I say, who the cloud is? is because you know him. You know the cloud. So let me, let me take you back to when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. There's this cloud covering them, shading them from the sun, and this pillar of cloud fire that guards them, uh, gets in the way in between the uh, Egyptians who are attacking them, and, and that cloud keeps them at bay and allows the Israelites to cross through the sea, which of course looks very much like Christian baptism. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says it is symbolic of Christian baptism. But that cloud, that cloud is on Mount Sinai, and God's voice thunders from that cloud, the Ten Commandments there. Uh, that, that cloud is always at the tent of meeting, at the door there, and... Uh, Interestingly, that cloud is linked to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Commentators look at the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary as that cloud. The cloud, God's glory and radiance taking up residence in a human womb, womb, Mary's womb. Because in Jesus, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, in Jesus dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. The fullness of God in a body 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Listen to this. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory. Hmm. In a body. The radiance of God's glory, Jesus, the Son, is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Who's in the temple? Jesus Christ is in the temple by his spirit. This is Jesus before he enters. He overshadows Mary. He enters her womb. And God in his glory, the radiance, the outshining of God is really what that word means. The brilliant outshining of God gets wrapped in human form. That is Jesus Christ who was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then the word takes on flesh and dwells among us. And so it, it, the second coming is also described in such terms. So the Shekinah glory is associated with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The actual person and his work in his second coming. And one day, you are going to see this glory up close, face to face, as Jesus prayed you would in his prayer uh, to, the, uh, to the Father in John 17. Uh, Revelation chapter 15 says that heaven has a bit of this smoke and glory and cloud. Now, on the night Jesus stood trial, the high priest said, I charge you under oath before God, are you the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, yes, I am. It is as you say. And in the future, you shall see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father, coming in clouds. There's that word again. Clouds of great glory. In fact, on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happened? Shining and the cloud. The cloud came over you know, we just think of white, puffy, cumulus clouds, but I'll tell you what, we're not talking the same kind of cloud. We're just talking about this, this, this effervescent kind of shining that is coming from God's glory. Matthew 16, Jesus said, for the Son of God is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Revelation opens with this familiar refrain. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So the cloud descends, fills the, the temple with glory. Who's in that house? Who's lit it up? The light of the world. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, that is just brings some phenomenal implications as we close here. Think about this. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And I don't expect you to even grasp it because I don't grasp it either. But uh, just check this out. That's not the only house that God's glory fills. Listen. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, quoting Colossians chapter 1, 
is now disclosed to the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit. He comes and he fills their hearts. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, John 14, he said, I'm sending a comforter, my spirit, the spirit of Christ, to be with you and he will be in you. John 14. I mean, we just take it for granted. Yeah, we open our hearts and Jesus comes in. Are you kidding me? The maker of heaven and earth? Jesus said, if anybody loves me and obeys my teaching, my Father and I will come and live with them and make our home in them. Okay, (laughs) let me get this straight. The God who made heaven and earth by speaking the universe's the universe into existence is saying, by the way, if you open your heart, I will take up residence within you. Did you stop and think about that today as you were going about your work and uh, all your anxieties and all your fears and all your inadequacies? Did you stop and think, oh, now, wait a second, the triune God has taken up residence inside my heart. I don't think you did. Because I didn't, you know? I was thinking, oh no, I'll never get to the prayer. I'll never make it tonight. I'm so tired. I don't know what I'm gonna say. You know what? The Bible says that God's spirit is within us. And yeah, you know what? It's really hard to see that. We know in the future, Philippians chapter three says, one day we'll have a body like his, right? We know that that's coming in the future. And we know that one day we're looking like that and one day we're going to shine like him. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 43 says, at the end when he comes back, he says, those who have rejected Christ will go away to eternal punishment, but those who have received him, and I quote, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We share in the divine nature. He's inside of us to help us escape the corruption in the world. I mean, come on. If God is for you, who could be against you? If God is inside of you, well, you know what? Oh, I'm feeling frustrated right now because I feel like I understand this. I don't know that I'm getting through to you. You don't look like you're getting it. Uh, You don't look as excited as I feel. And so maybe I'm getting the wrong message. So I'm going to open my eyes and then I'm going to look at your faces and then I'm going to feel better, right? All right, here I go. Oh, you're getting it. Live, both of us, all of us. Live the truth. God is in you. Should you be anxious? Should you be afraid? Should you feel inadequate? Yeah, we feel inadequate, but we know the truth that in our weakness we're strong. Why? Because with God, all things are possible. And Christ, through Christ, I can do all things because He strengthens me. Why? Because he's way out there somewhere and I'm going to call out to him and he's going to see me from afar and he's going to send down. (laughs) No. He's in you. He's knit your soul together with that. Let's just start 
cooperating and believing and letting a little of that glory get unleashed through faith, through obedience, and through cooperation. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and just thank you for these truths. They're just, oh, when we combine them with faith and we, we actually understand how close you are, how powerful you are, how glorious you are, and that you have taken up residence in our hearts and made us clean and imparted to us the divine nature so that we could live for you. Help us, Lord, to realize these great truths and to yield our spirit and will to your spirit and will who resides within. We thank you. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. I think his number one strategy with us is to keep us from believing biblical truth that belongs to us, these ideas. Just keep us distracted. Keep us from engaging the idea that God's spirit lives in us, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you, Romans chapter 8. Let's think about that. I'm just going to change your Thursday. It's going to change how you talk to your wife. It's going to change how you look at your challenges. It's going to change how you look at your darling little sin that's been around forever and ever and ever. It's going to change everything. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. I'm doing my part right here. That's all I know. That's all I know. That's all I can do. I can't jump out there even though I want to crowd surf right now. I, I really want to get out there, but I'm just going to just deliver the word and let the word do its work. Receive it. Engage. Take every thought captive. And make that Bible your reality. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we pray in our going our separate ways now that your spirit would seal in this truth and fire fire us up to believe your word as it is the word of God not the word of men God breathed words from heaven sent to give us life not that we should live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God let us be changed and transformed as we receive your holy word tonight as true. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. And with God, all things are possible. So we commit ourselves to doing your will, surrendering our hearts to you. In Jesus' powerful, wonderful name, amen. Amen?